Thank you so much, Charlene. Good morning, first friends. I am so excited to finally be standing before you and worshiping with you. I want to begin by acknowledging that the pulpit from which I now speak rests upon the territory of Hushun, the ancestral and unceded land of the Lishjan Ohlone people. I acknowledge past harms and broken covenants, and I give thanks to the Ohlone people who have cherished and stewarded this good earth for 10,000 years and who remain our neighbors and vital members of our community. And to make that acknowledgement a, a tiny bit more real, to rescue it maybe a little bit from being merely performative or a perfunctory gesture, I, I am making a donation today in your name uh, and in your honor to the Rematriate the Land Fund at the Sogoreate Land Trust. And if the spirit moves you, I invite you to, to do likewise. Friends, let us uh, turn to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to her purpose. For those whom she foreknew, she also predestined to be conformed to the image of her Son, in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom she predestined, she also called And those whom she called, she also justified. And those whom she justified, she also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? She who did not withhold her own son but gave him for all of us, will she not with him give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Whose is it to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of God in Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or peril, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. God who stands at every threshold 
between what was and what shall be, between here and there, between contemplation and action, between one human being and another, you who wait at every opening, not as gatekeeper and guard, but as waymaker and welcoming community, committee. We gather before you hungry to hear from you a word that is so true that something changes. God, we gather on the threshold. Meet us here in our being and breath, in our speaking and hearing, in our clamorous questions and our quiet hope, in our deepest peace and our holy agitation. In your name, I pray. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. That might be the most important thing written in all of Scripture. I encourage you to be forever skeptical of any preacher who makes audacious, universalizing proclamations like that, especially if you've just met that pastor. Uh, but in this case, I'm doubling down. I said what I said. Uh, this might be it. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Now, I'm paraphrasing slightly, and maybe we'll get further into the text later, but I'm not even sure we need to because that one phrase alone is already a sermon unto itself, uh, an assertion so, so bold, so radical, so complex that trying to take any more than that uh, might be uh, just biting off more than we can chew. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is to say nothing can cause us to become unloved or unlovable or incapable of love because the love of God flows both ways, right? It never stagnates. Nothing and no one can take from us our essential birthright identity as beloved. It is in us. It is us. It is who we are because of who God is. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Everything else that is true about the world and what happens in it, about this life and all that transpires in human relationship, about our nation's politics, our shared history, our deepest, darkest secrets, about you, about me, all of it exists inside of this container. Every story that has ever been told, that can ever be told, unfolds within the context of this larger story, love. It's not just a promise or a commandment. It is the air we breathe. As the Nicaraguan poet, mystic, and revolutionary Ernesto Cardinal once put it, the thirst that is in all beings is the love of God. Or in the words of Thomas Merton, in a very radical sense, love is the only and unique possibility. We are created by love, of love, for love. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. But that's not the way it seems, is it? 
It's not the way it feels to most of us most of the time. It isn't the message many of us received in our families of origin. It isn't the message queer and trans kids are receiving from our elected officials as another wave of anti-LGBTQ legislation sweeps the nation. Or indeed, the message many of them are receiving in their churches. It wasn't the message given to Carmen and Maria, the pregnant women from Honduras and El Salvador, who say they were denied water by Texas National Guard soldiers last week. It isn't the message telegraphed to the family of Jarrell Garris, Jarrell Garris, a black father living with mental illness who was killed by police earlier this month in New Rochelle, New York, near my hometown, after being accused of stealing a banana and a handful of grapes. No, that might not be the sense we get if we read the news or glance out at our neighbors experiencing homelessness or search our own hearts, if we are so inextricably bound to love, by love, for love, then why? Why? You can fill in your own blanks. I don't know, maybe you do. (laughs) Maybe you walk through your life in full and assured awareness of that fact. I hope you do in every moment of every day, knowing with your whole heart that you are essentially irrevocably lovable and lovely and beloved. And that so is everyone else on earth and every living thing. But I don't. I mean, I want to. I do sometimes. And I'm a cisgender, heterosexual, owning class, U.S.-born, English-speaking white dude. Set aside the fact that I'm also a little neuro-spicy. I'm part of the most privileged demographic on the planet. Shouldn't that make it easier? But I wrestle with this. I struggle to keep hold of it. Maybe I'm not the only one. So is it even true? Are we beloved? Is there really nothing that can keep us from God's love? Not life or death? Not angels or rulers or things present or things to come or powers or height or depth or anything else in all of creation? I am convinced, Paul says. Are we? And if it is true, what difference does it make? Because like Mary J. Blige in 1992, I'm searching for a real love. Someone who set my heart free. Can I get an amen? The funny thing is, uh, we don't know a lot about the intended recipients of Paul's letter to the Romans, in part because unlike so many of Paul's letters, he doesn't appear to be responding here to a specific event or conflict. In fact, he's never met most of them. He's never been to Rome, and he has had no direct relationship with the church there. He probably wrote this letter from Corinth around the year 57, five or six years before his death. 
And it's possible that a key purpose of this letter was seeking to raise funds for his, the anticipated westward expansion of, of his ministry. But some scholars argue it turned out to be kind of a last will and testament, a personal testimony and a theological treatise before his martyrdom, the longest of all Paul's letters. Whoever Paul was imagining when he wrote to the church in Rome, I think we can reasonably imagine that Paul was in part preaching to himself the sermon he needed to hear, as I think every honest preacher does, and maybe especially in today's text on the love of God. After all, this is the core Christian sermon that makes sticking around for the coffee hour worth it, isn't it? That we are loved? Isn't this the thing we most need to hear, that we need to hear first of all? Even Jesus needed to hear it, didn't he? All four gospel writers chose to include an account of Jesus' baptism. And in each case, that scene, that story, marks the very beginning of his ministry. Everything he says and does, everyone he heals and feeds, the truth he speaks, the tables he flips, the way he puts his body on the line for the welfare of the whole human family, it all comes after God announces for him and for all to hear, this is my beloved in whom I am well pleased. The story begins with love. It is the embodied experience of belovedness, real love, concrete love that makes all the rest possible. And as Paul writes in our text for today, it was God's intention that Jesus might be the firstborn in a large family. As begins Christ's story, so begins ours. Nothing can separate us from the love of God but Jesus also soon had his wildernesses, his Gethsemanes, his Golgothas, that shook and obscured love and placed demands upon it. And we have ours. Oshita Moore is a pastor, activist, and author who wrote a book called Dear White Peacemakers on Dismantling Racism. In it, she writes about her work training uh, young people and church folks for peacemaking and anti-racism work and about her own evolution as a leader and a human. And in one vignette, she describes a moment towards the end of a, a week-long, hard-hitting anti-racist training which she was leading. And she noticed a young white woman sitting off to the side uh, on the curb alone looking absolutely devastated and exhausted after all that she had absorbed that week. And she thought to herself, good. Good. Because that's how I feel every day of my life, living in a nation that is in so many ways hostile to my very existence. Now she's getting a taste of what it's like. Now she's starting to wake up to the truth. She's fighting back against the same despair I've been fighting all along. But then she had another impulse, just to go and sit beside her 
and put her arm around her. And she thought carefully and critically about this second impulse, about how black women have so often been coerced or forced in the history of our nation to give their care to white people, about how it wasn't her responsibility or her duty as a woman of color to assuage white guilt or to instill hope in white people, about how that young white woman had her own work to do. And then there was a third thought that didn't contradict any of those earlier thoughts, but it came and it stood beside them inside of her. It said, I don't have to love her, but in freedom, I choose to love her. And so she went to her and she sat beside her and she put her arm around her. And almost instantly, the young white woman threw her arms around her, gripped her tightly and burst into tears. And so she just held her there for a long moment and told her, shh, you're going to be okay. We are going to be okay. In another vignette, she writes that after ending another training, a student got up and said, well, the most important thing I learned as a white person is I'm a racist. All white people are racist. And she said she jumped out of her chair and said, hold, hold on, don't say that about yourself. You are beloved. That is who you are. Your name is not racist, it is beloved. And Moore goes on, she, said, she says, and listen, if there's one thing I'm so over talking about, it's belovedness. She says, it's become, it's become kind of a, a trite, facile response for many Christians to every question or problem. And yet, Moore writes, what the world needs are more white peacemakers who know that they are beloved by a loving God, and from that overflow, seek the belovedness of others. But it's easier said than done, right? becoming grounded in our own belovedness, and not to dismiss in any way the important specificity of, of Moore's words, but whatever our race and social location, there are things that stand in the way of love, aren't there? Right? Paul says nothing can separate us from the love of God, but there is much in this world that can cause in us a kind of soul injury that can impair our ability to receive love and experience belovedness, that can seem to place love at the end of an unsolvable labyrinth, whether because of our actions or those of others, whether because of the direct individual traumas we remember or the intergenerational traumas we have inherited out of context whether the violence of systemic injustice and institutional racism and all the resulting deprivations or the smaller, more private inequities of our one-on-one -on -one relationships, whether the things that should not have happened to us but did, or the things that should have happened and did not. Though we may live our whole lives within the expansive, verdant country of God's love, some of us may never know it. In Life of the Beloved, Henry Nouwen writes that 
It's not so easy to hear the voice of God saying you're beloved, quote, in a world filled with voices that shout you are no good. You are ugly, you are worthless, you are despicable, you are nobody unless you can demonstrate the opposite. He goes on, my dark side says I'm no good. I deserve to be pushed aside, forgotten, rejected, and abandoned. Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us beloved. And this, I confess, is a code I haven't quite cracked. The question of how we get back to that sacred voice, how we stay living in and out of the knowledge that we are loved, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, how we find that real love we are searching for. But I have a hunch. I've seen glimmers. In many activist and community organizing circles, I've heard it put it this way, the people closest to the problems or closest to the hurt are also those who are closest to the solutions, closest to the healing. My professor, James Cone, a key articulator of black liberation theology, said this, the Christian community, therefore, is a community that freely becomes oppressed because they know that Jesus himself had defined humanity's liberation in the context of what happens to the little ones. He talks about liberation, but I submit to you that for our purposes, liberation and love are functionally the same thing. If he were here now, he might take me to task for this, but I say use those words interchangeably and see how it feels. He writes, authentic liberation of self is attainable only in the context of an oppressed community fighting in the struggle of freedom. There can be no freedom for God in isolation from the humiliated and the abused. There can be no freedom for God unless the hungry are fed, the sick are healed, and justice is given to the poor. No one can be truly liberated until all are liberated. In an unjust society, freedom for Christ can be found only among those who are in chains. We might say it this way. Self-love cannot be separated from our pursuit of the beloved community. Neither of these loves can exist in isolation, but together they fuel each other. We cannot receive the love of God in all of its fullness without also being swept up into the love of neighbors. We cannot follow Jesus to the margins, surrender our power and privilege, put our bodies on the line for justice and labor beside the poor and the oppressed without being surprised by God's overwhelming love for us too. Just as the earth both rotates on its axis and revolves around the sun, we are forever being moved in these two ways for one purpose. a fun side note. I honestly didn't know this when I half-jokingly selected my sermon title for today. 
but last month, Mary J. Blige put out a Lifetime movie called Real Love that reflects in many ways her own long and painful journey towards love. Uh, and I swear I didn't come into this thinking I was going to quote Mary J. Blige at length, but in her Icon Award acceptance speech uh, at the Billboard Music Awards, she thanked God, and then she said this, the message of my music has always been that we are not alone in our struggles. And I'm not alone now. For so long, I was searching for real love, but I finally found my real love. And that real love is me. That real love is me. And we might add, it is each of us. And it is so much bigger than all of us. Beloved, take heart. There is in this world a real love that is ready and able to set our hearts free. A love from which we cannot be separated. It is for you and for all of us. And it can be ours. If only we claim it together. Amen. Amen.